Thank you, Chad and Jeff and Will, today. I like these kind of simple sets every now and then. It's a, it's a good, good sound. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here. As Mike said, it would be easy to turn over today and just not come, you know. It's kind of one of those days, but y'all are here, and I appreciate it. So I, I don't know how many of y'all know who Tim Keller is. He was a, a pastor of a minister of a big church in New York for many years, has written lots of books, and I really like him. Um, but I read something from him recently, and he kind of gives this scenario that I want to share with y'all today. He says, let's say you have a friend who is dying of some terrible disease, and so you go with him and take him to the doctor or her to the doctor, and the doctor says, well, you know, I've looked at your charts, I've done the research, and I have a remedy for you, and if you just follow my advice, you will be healed, and you'll have a long and fruitful life, but there's only one problem. While you're taking my remedy, you can't eat chocolate. Okay, yeah, I know y'all are waiting for the punchline. But what if your friend turns to you and goes, you know what, forget it. No chocolate, what's the use of living? I'll follow the doctor's remedy, but I will continue to eat chocolate. I'm not giving that up. Now, I don't know about you, if I heard that, I would go, why would you not give up chocolate to get the remedy that would save you? I mean, doesn't that, seem, doesn't that seem crazy? I mean, I like chocolate, but if that would save me and, and give me a fruitful life, then I'll, I'll give it up. But if I really think about it, there are a lot of things in my life that I'm not willing to give up to get to a spot I need to be. And there are a lot of conditions that I put on things that say, well, I'll do that one day, but I'm not going to start now because there's, I got to put some conditions on it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And we've been looking at, if you've been here, you know this little phrase we've been looking at. If this is your first time or you're joining us for the first time in a couple of weeks, we've been looking at this phrase called, one day or day one you decide. And so a lot of things in our lives, we have, as we've been going through this and reflected on this, we have a lot of good intentions about one day I'm going to do this. And we have good intentions, uh, intentions about doing those things, but we never really get started on that path or on that goal, and that's kind of what we've been walking through. Like that guy, he has good intentions, and he he's going to go to the doctor. He's doing the right things, but when he heard he had to give up chocolate to be healed, just not willing to do that. And many of us are sitting in our current condition, and we're not willing to give up something to start day one of some real change in our lives. We're just not there yet. So Tim Keller continues in this same uh, quote from his book, he says, If Christ is really God, then all conditions are gone. To know Jesus Christ is to say, Lord, anywhere your will touches my life, anywhere your word speaks, I will say, Lord, I will obey. There are no conditions anymore. If he's really God, he can't just be a supplement. We have to come to him and say, Okay, Lord, I'm willing to let you start a complete reordering of my life. And that's a hard point or a hard place to come to, isn't it? To say, I'm ready for a complete reordering of my life, and I'm going to let you do that. That's a hard place to come to. But as we've been going through the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark, you know, there's Matt in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, we're looking at Mark. I've mentioned that Mark is trying to get readers to answer this question, is Jesus Christ really the Son of God? Is He really the Savior of the world, or is He something else that 
the world tries to say, well, he was a good teacher, and yeah, he lived, and he did some things, but he really wasn't God in the flesh, and he really wasn't God, and, you know, it's questionable if he really died and rose again. You know, that's all up for, uh, wait a minute, we have to come to a decision about is that really true or not? And that's really what Tim Keller is saying. That's really what Mark is doing through his gospel is saying, you have to decide. I'm going to present eyewitness evidence to you and things that happen, but you have to decide in your mind and your heart and your soul if he really is the Savior. And if he is, that requires something of us. It requires something big from us. So over the last two weeks, we've looked and at Mark, a couple of first chapters there, and we've read about the things that Jesus did that clearly point to and confirm that, yeah, Messiahs do that kind of stuff. They have that kind of authority. They have that kind of power. And we've read about fishermen who are leaving their source of income as fishermen in the fishing industry to follow Jesus to become fishers of people. Why would they do that? They were no longer satisfied in believing that one day the Messiah would come. When they met Jesus, they said, it's now. This is day one. It's not one day, it's now. And if that really is true, then I'm going to start day one of following him. And they dropped their nets and they went and they followed him. So today we're going to look at another section of Mark's gospel. And, And an interesting thing again about that, contrary in that culture, rabbis didn't go and ask people, hey, do you want to follow me? It was the other way around. A young man would go to a rabbi and say, I would like to follow you. Can I be your follower? And the rabbi would have to see if that person had measured up to it. So Jesus has flipped this completely around. And so he's going to people who knew at some point in their young life didn't make the cut somewhere between five and ten years old. And the rabbi said, yeah, you're not going to be a rabbi You might as well become a fisherman or a carpenter or something else because you don't make the cut. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, no, I want you to follow me. And they're going, what? Who is this? Again, Jesus was very counterculture in the way he did things. So we're going to look at another section of Mark's gospel where we see another day one for someone who Jesus again goes and says, will you follow me? They're not coming to Jesus He has chosen them and is going to them. And we're also going to see the reaction of those who refuse to see Jesus as the Messiah and will not take those day one steps to follow him. We're going to look at Mark chapter 2. It's going to be on the screens or you can use your Bibles or personal devices. But Mark says this starting in verse 13 of chapter 2. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples, the disciples of the Pharisees, are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot. So long as they have him with them, But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. No one sews a patch of 
unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, make the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. But I want to talk to you all a little bit this morning about Matthew who is sitting at this tax collector's booth, and Jesus says, come follow me, and he leaves that. Now, we might think of a tax collector as an annoying IRS agent. Sorry if that's what you do. Um, But you probably don't have an intense hatred for that person. You're just annoyed that we have to pay a lot of taxes. But I want you all to understand something. In this culture, there were probably very few people who had a really good education and could read and write. And that probably even translated that not all of Jesus' disciples could read and write. But we know that Matthew could because we know he also wrote a gospel of Jesus Christ, didn't he? So Matthew, as a tax collector, he had to be able to read and write in order to be a tax collector. He had to not only be able to read and write, but he had to know how to communicate in several different languages. In this culture, Rome is the occupying country. They are in Judea. They are the ones who occupy. So you have to know Roman language, which was probably Latin. You have to know Greek, which a lot of them probably spoke. You have to also know Hebrew, which Mark was. I mean, which Matthew was. He was a Hebrew, so he knew that language. And also Aramaic that a lot of people spoke. You had to know at least four languages and understand those and be able to communicate those. You as a tax collector had to have a sharp mind about math, obviously, about money, about taxes, about local industry, about government and economics. And so the Romans who had made Judea part of the great Roman Empire... They weren't stopping there. They were going all over the world and they were expanding this Roman Empire. And this took a lot of money to expand their empire. And even in Judea, there was a local king who had projects, big big architectural projects. As we know, King Herod did some amazing things for the first century to, to have these things happen in Judea. And guess what? That needed lots of money. So how did the Romans and how did King Herod get this money to do all this expansion? Y'all know the answer to that. It's still happening. What's it called? It starts with a T. Taxes, right? That's how they did it. And that's how we continue to do it. And we get disgruntled and we go, this is ridiculous. I have to pay taxes. Recently, my, my two daughters, I'm helping them walk through getting cars and transferring titles and stuff. And they think it's just, oh, we go find the car we want, we buy it, and that's it. No. You have to go to the tag office, and there's something called ad valorem tax. And you have to pay for that, and you have to pay for the title, and you have to pay for it every year. And you have to have insurance and proof of insurance before you can even get that. And yes, you have to pay for the title. Y'all know this. Y'all are laughing, but it's not funny, is it? It's annoying. We don't like it. But there's taxes. And so, of course, they paid with all these things. And there were lots of taxes on things in the first century. Food. Any kind of business you owned, you had to pay a percentage of that to the Romans to even have a business. Just because you lived, you had to pay taxes on goods and tolls and services. And and the roads, although they may not have been great in those days, the Romans were trying to improve that. So you had to pay taxes. And the Jewish people thought it was overwhelming. Way too much. And it was putting them into poverty. And within that vast empire, Rome needed local people who knew that region, who knew those people who could speak that language, who were well-educated, who knew not only the people, but also knew 
what people did in the area, and especially who are the wealthy people? Who's making the most money in this region? They had to know the local economy and the industry to work for Rome and collect all these taxes. So they were looking for locals, and this was a very lucrative job. You made a lot of money as a tax collector. And the local people who had those skills could bid on being a tax collector. And so at some point in his life, Matthew, a Jewish man, decides he's going to work for Rome because he can make lots of money. He knew there was some risk to that. He knew he would be hated, but he didn't care because he wanted that money. So he applies and he gets the job. And here's another thing. As long as they paid the percentage Rome said they had to pay according to all the different taxes and they gave it to Rome, they say, we don't care how much you collect because anything you collect over what Rome wants, guess what? You can just stick that in your pocket. What a deal. What a deal. So Matthew decides. And so we know from reading the New Testament and reading other history, we know that these people were hated by the people because not only were they tax collectors, but they were known and had a, um, a, they were notorious for being dishonest and greedy. And so they were working for the occupier, they were working for the enemy Rome, and they were making money off of their people, and people knew it, and there was nothing they could do. It's a rough feeling in it. So you see what I'm saying? It wasn't just like you're an annoying IRS agent. No, you're a hated person that because of what you're doing to our country and to our people, our family is perpetually in poverty because of what you're doing. And you're one of us. Why would you work for them? Why would you be a part of this? So I say all that, y'all, to tell you that this Levi or Matthew, you know what Matthew's name means? It means gift of God. Now, when you say Craig, you just think well, that's his name. Do you know what Craig means? It means dweller of the crags. What? I mean, what, was, what were my parents thinking? We don't care. It just sounds cool. I like somebody that has a name. But Jewish people, it had meaning, real meaning. And when you said Matthew, they knew it means gift of God. Now, you translate that into what he was doing. Matthew, gift of God, tax collector. That does not compute. You are not a gift of God. I don't know why your parents, and his parents probably, when they named him, wanted him to grow up to be a gift from God. And when people said, Matthew, oh, he's a gift from God. He's such a wonderful businessman. He's such a wonderful rabbi, whatever. But instead, he's a tax collector. So you can imagine what this did. Mark mentions his father, Alphaeus, and him and his mother were shamed in this culture because of what their son chose. They were ostracized as he was. And they may, and we probably think, they did disown him for at least some time. If y'all have been watching um, the series that I've told you to watch, The Chosen, they show this very clearly. And it's a very difficult thing. Matthew's father and mother have disowned him because of what he's done. So I say all this, do you think the Messiah, the Savior of the world, should choose somebody like that to be their disciple? Not no, but heck no. But Jesus thought he should call him to be his disciple, didn't he? And he walked by and said, I want you to follow me. And it wasn't some mistake that day. Did you hear what Mark said? He was sitting in what? His tax booth. It wasn't like, oh, I didn't understand. Never mind. You're a, no, I know who you are. I've lived in this area. I've paid the taxes. I know who you are. I'm asking you to come follow me. And Matthew's going, what? But what does it say? Matthew followed him, didn't he? He left the tax booth. He left this lucrative business. And I think we need to understand here that as good as fishing jobs were in that fishing industry that Simon and Andrew and James and John left 
to follow Jesus, they were nowhere even close to bringing in the kind of money that Matthew was making. Not even close. What was it about Jesus' call that made Matthew forget about that greed, forget about all that money in this lucrative job, and start day one of following Jesus? Well, maybe verse 15 tells us why. Jesus not only said, Matthew, come follow me. In the next verse it says, he's at his house eating dinner with him. He's at his house with other tax collectors eating dinner with him. He's at his house with other sinners eating dinner with them and hanging out with them. What in the world? What kind of Savior, what kind of Messiah is this? And I have a suspicion that Matthew knew in his heart and soul, I'm sick. I know I'm cheating my people, and I know it was because of greed. I know it was because of this insatiable desire to get more and more money, and I've had it and for years now, and it's not really satisfied me, and I'm still sick inside. And this guy said, come follow me, and I'm going to at least listen to what he says because he'll at least talk to me. Everybody else, when I walk through the streets, they hate me, and they let me know that. But he's at their house, and as we read, the religious leaders of the day heard Jesus was hanging out at Levi's house with sinners, and they have to do an investigation because, you know, they're the religious leaders, and they need to find out what's going on. If you're the Messiah, you don't do things like hang out with sinners and tax collectors, and they have to ask questions and cast judgment on Jesus, and so they do. And they were not about to admit that maybe they were sick, that maybe they needed healing, and they certainly weren't going to give up their chocolate, if you will, of self-righteousness and legalism. We are in good in God's sight because of what we do. We can earn our way, but you certainly aren't earning that, Jesus. And so when Jesus hears all this investigation and why are you at their house and what are you doing, he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that statement just kind of lays there. And in the next section of our text, John the Baptist's disciples, and here we go, there's the Pharisees again. They're investigating, and people question Jesus as to why your disciples are not fasting. John the Baptist's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees, their disciples are fasting. Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? So now one minute Jesus is doing the wrong thing by going to a sinner's house, and now he's not doing the right thing because he's not doing something. He's not fasting. So Jesus, in his transcendent style, and as a true rabbi, a true rabbi always answers a question with a question. So he says, well, how can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? And then he says, they cannot. He answers it for them. So long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. If you're asking that question, why aren't your disciples fasting with the other disciples? What does that even mean? What? What are you talking about a, a wedding? What are you talking about a bridegroom? I ask you why your disciples weren't fasting like the other ones. What does that have to do with a wedding and a feast? Are you insane, Jesus? And I can only imagine those furrowed brows as they look at Jesus. Now, most of us may understand fasting. You know what that means. You go without eating for a certain time. Not a fan. Okay. I'm one of those people who, I'm not saying it's not, a, it, it is a spiritual discipline and I'm not making fun of, I'm just saying, when I don't eat, you know the Snickers commercial, I'm that guy, turn into, you know, that kind of thing. But it is a spiritual discipline and it's most widely understood as a function for the community and as individuals to avert or to terminate some calamity that's coming 
by going to God and saying, I'm not going to eat, I'm going to give that up. And I know my mind and my body are saying I need to eat, but I want to focus and discipline myself to go to you, God, and say, we can't, I can't do what is coming upon me without your help. It's a spiritual discipline. And by not eating, I'm trying to, again, discipline my mind and my body and my soul to focus on something else besides food, and that's God. It's also practiced and has practiced in history when someone's trying to get clarity or answers from God about something. Like, God, I have this situation, and and I don't know. I need some clarity. I need some wisdom, so I'm going to not eat, and I'm going to focus on you and trying to get some answers for that. But Jesus made it clear in his sermon on the mount, that praying and fasting was to be done not so everybody knows you're doing it, but in private, so it's not obvious to people that Jesus called hypocrites. Now, I don't know about you, but there's been a few times in my life where I've gone to eat uh, with some people. I say, hey, let's all meet for lunch on this date, and we all agree, and you're sitting around eating, and there's one person that isn't ordering anything. And they say, oh, I'm not eating today. And they go, why not? You know, well, because I'm fasting. And then the whole group, you know, like, oh, I just ordered a big cheeseburger and fries, and you're not going to eat because you're fasting. So I feel like a heel. I'm not making fun of that, but I'm just saying it kind of makes everybody feel like, and I'm like, and I want to say, well, you know, Jesus said you should do that in private and not tell anybody, but I didn't say that because that really happened. Somebody said that, and I was like, okay, but I'm eating my hamburger. I paid for it, you know. But really, Jesus does say that on the Sermon on the Mount. Go into your closet and pray by yourself. Everybody doesn't need to know. You don't need to do it out. And that's what the Pharisees did. They did it so everybody will notice. And they were like, oh, I'm fasting today. He goes, no, don't do that. That makes it seem like you're doing it for show. And that's not what it's about. So interestingly, another one of um, the disciples that Jesus called John also wrote, we know, an account of Jesus' life. And in chapter 3 of that, listen to what As these people are going, what is Jesus talking about, bridegroom? John knew what he was talking about. Listen to what he says in chapter 3. An argument arose, I'm sorry, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So that guy he's talking about is Jesus. And his disciples are going, wait a minute, somebody else is getting popular. Aren't you going to do something, Jesus? They were worried about power and authority and all this stuff. And this is what John says in verse 27. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. There's that language. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. You see how that tracks right along with what Jesus is saying, that the Messiah is the bridegroom and they should understand. John understood this. Jesus understood this. Why didn't John's disciples understand this? Why didn't the Pharisees understand this? Jesus is making clear that because of who he is as the Messiah and the bridegroom, this season right now is not a season for fasting. It will come down the road, and his disciples will do that, but it's not right now. And again, these folks are looking at him like, what? I don't understand what a wedding has to do with this. We're asking you why you're just... And Jesus is like, 
So then Jesus, as he always does, he loves to throw another variable into the equation, doesn't he? Especially with parables. And he says things that should make it clear because he's talking about everyday objects, everyday things that everybody understands and has experienced, but people whose minds and hearts are shut to that, they can't see it. It just doesn't register with them. So he says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on a garment. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you know, he says it pulls away. Now, when I was a kid, I wore these jeans called tough skins. Does anybody remember tough skins that were sold by Sears and Roebuck? I thought they were the coolest thing in the world. But they had these real thick patches. You remember that? Anybody ever? I see somebody going, yeah. And then, you know, you younger kids go, oh, a dad joke. Here we go, you know. But, but there were times where, and, and all of you understand now, there are some things in, that Jesus talks about in that first century culture that we don't, we have to go, wait a minute, I need some background on that. But this one is not. That still happens today. You have an old pair of jeans, and we don't care anymore about having holes in them. I get that. We buy them that way now. But in the old days, you'd get a, I get a pair of jeans that I loved, and I would, you know, have a bike wreck or fall down playing football in the street or whatever we did, you know, wiffle ball, and I would get a big, and I had to wear those jeans to school, and so sometimes mom would put a patch on those, and you know if they got to a certain point and they were really old, and you put a new patch real stiff on an old pair of jeans, what would it do? It would start tearing away to the point mom goes, these are going in the trash. You're like, no, mama, please, no, no, you're getting a new pair of tough skins, and they're, oh, well, okay. You know, and then I'm excited. So we track with that. That's true. An old, worn-out cloth cannot take a brand-new cloth. It's going to tear. It's going to pull. And Jesus is saying, you don't do that. But what is Jesus talking about? Is he really talking about that kind of stuff? Is he really talking about cloth? No, Jesus is comparing this rigid, legalistic religion of the Pharisees to this old garment. And Jesus points out, he did not come to patch up Judaism. He did not come up, come to patch up the old covenant with a new piece of unshrunk cloth because it would result in the destruction of the entire piece. That's why Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses. I came to what? Does anybody remember? Fulfill. Some of y'all understood that and have heard that. Jesus said, no, there was always a plan to show you that the old covenant of following rules, no human can do that. We're always going to fail, and we need a Savior. There needs to be a new covenant. It wasn't that God in the middle of it goes, oh, i got to fix this. He knew it from the very beginning, y'all. He knew you need to throw out the old piece, and there has to be a brand new cloth, not the old one. He came to complete the old covenant, renew it to what God intended it to be, to wash the garment as white as snow and make it new. If he patches the old covenant, the patch will tear away from the old, leaving us lost in our sin, leaving us guilty and shameful in our sin. But Jesus comes to resurrect us, restore us, redeem us, not just patch us up. And he came to create and establish a new covenant in his blood. He gave his life that once and for all sets us right with God. So when those guys hear about the patch, they're still going, what? But man, I understand that. I hope you all do. We need a new covenant, didn't we? We needed Jesus. Well, what about wineskin? That's a little different. And some of you all know this, but this was fascinating to me. So in those days, people used uh, goat or sheep, um, you know, skins and intestines and stuff to make these wine skins and so fermented drinks when you put it in this new wine skin obviously fermented drink you know like you put a um a carbonated beverage in just a regular um water bottle what happens you start hearing this 
and it gets tighter and tighter, and some of y'all have had them explode on you, right? The same kind of concept. They put fermented drink. But these skins, these animal skins, would have a capacity to expand, and they would be able to hold the drink. But the older they went, the more they expanded. They couldn't expand anymore. They had reached capacity. And if you put new wine in them over and over again, eventually they would burst. And people are listening to this, and they understand. And Jesus was making a point that you got to put new wine into new wineskins or it's not going to work. But he's not talking about wine or skins, is he? He's talking about their capacity to understand this new covenant, this new teaching, this new kingdom he's talking about. And he's here to do something completely new. And anyone who tried to make sense of it through the old covenant and the old expectations and the old regulations... That's what the Pharisees were doing. No, we're going to continue this system and pretend that we can obey all the rules. We really don't, and we know we don't, but we're going to pretend we do, and we're going to judge everybody else. And Jesus said, no, we're not doing that anymore, because that was never what that system was intended to do anyway. You need a Savior. And if people expected this to look familiar to what God had done on the old covenant, the rule following, to be righteous, they wouldn't understand, and they didn't. And the real problem with these folks was they could not admit they were sick. I don't need a doctor, but they did need a doctor. And they were not willing to start day one of giving up their chocolate, if you will, of earning their salvation by their actions. So today I ask us this question, y'all. What is our chocolate in our lives? What is your chocolate in your life that's keeping you from getting closer to God? What is the chocolate in your life that's keeping you from accepting and that offering, that cure that Jesus is offering to you. Now, it may be different from these people we're talking about today, but believe you me, there are still people in this world, and y'all know that exist, who are, you know, rule followers and always walking around looking about who's breaking the law and, and, and self-righteousness and, and, and all that kind of stuff, legalists. We know, but maybe there's something else that's your chocolate that you just can't give up. You know it would help you, but I'm not doing that. But the hope and challenge today is, is you, you and I have to struggle with that and come up with what is God asking me to give up and really walk away from that's going to make me free. But I want that not to end on a negative note. The, this passage, all that we read today, the thing that, that just encourages me the most is Matthew. Jesus knew exactly who Matthew was, exactly he was greedy and he was dishonest. And he still went to him and says, I want you to follow me. And he still went to his house and ate dinner with him. And it caused a life change in Matthew, didn't it? Because he spent time with him and he showed him. I believe Jesus showed him that what he was doing was wrong, but he was willing to give up that chocolate. So what about you today? What about me today? What do we need to do to get to that point, we can be like Matthew and go, man, I'm giving up a lot, this lucrative business and making money. But man, it's like it hasn't done anything for my soul. And Jesus has. And it's the same, it's the same decision that we have to make today. So maybe there's somebody here today that needs to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you're not saying you got it all figured out. Because if you come like that, man, it's, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. So we are going to give an invitation, as we always do, before we take communion together. And if you need to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior and, and start that day one of following Him, we want to, I'll try to walk you through that. If you're looking for a church, let me tell you, we are not perfect. We have our issues, but we are committed to that new covenant in Jesus' blood. And we're getting ready to celebrate that through communion. If you're a guest with us today, we invite you to take communion. If you're a believer, you don't have to. But if you didn't get one, there's baskets 
right at the back walls. You can go get one of those, and we're going to do that right after this song. So right now, let's just reflect on a, on a God that called Matthew. And if he can call Matthew and transform his life, what can he do for us? Let's think about that as we prepare our hearts for communion. And if you have a decision, I'll be right here. Let's stand and sing together.